welcome to this week's message from a new church. For more information, or if you'd like to contact us, please visit our website, newchurch.nz. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy this message. Thanks so much, Eddie. Kia ora koutou, new church whanau. How are you all doing? Okay, I'm, I, I've been trying to experiment with sitting down while I preach and standing up. The thing is, when I stand up, um, I, get, I, get, I move a lot faster when I'm excited, so you end up like watching a tennis match or something when I'm preaching. Um, hands up if you like me sitting down better. Hands up if you like me standing up better. Oh, there we go, so it is. It's like 50-50. No, no. I just have a chair and like every five minutes I'll stand up and sit down. Um, anyway, welcome. My name's Simon. Welcome to every visitor and newcomer. Uh, and, and if you, this is your church home, I want to say a huge welcome as well. I love coming to church. I love being a part of my church family. I think 10 or 12 of us went to the New Life Annual Conference down in Wellington um, last week. It was awesome. Give me a shout if you went. <laughs> um, and so our church trip or journey, like, you know how the Bible says that God places the lonely into families? And I really felt that that's a word for our church, Lord places lonely churches into church families as well. And, um, so we've been exploring um, becoming a part of the New Life network of churches most of this year. So for the last six months, um, giving you guys opportunity to, to ask questions and to, to talk about it with us as we journey along. So this is pretty much one of the last parts of this journey before the oversight or the governance team meet together and really discuss if this is where we want to go. So guys, you've got like four days left. Um, if you want to email, if you want to chat to us, we're going to come together. But I'm really, I'm really stoked and really excited about what God wants to do um, in the life of Renew Church. It just keeps getting better and better. Um, and one more thing before I get into it. I know my, my sermons can be quite chunky with content. Uh, so I, I, there's no way you can sort of remember everything in the next 40 minutes. That's why we are so generous to you. We've got the notes on the Bible app. You actually don't even have to take notes anymore. You can look at the notes on the Bible app. You can save them. Um, but I just really feel this, this message especially because I'm covering so many um, topics and issues that are so relevant to where we are as a culture, it, it pays to actually have that, save it. You can use it. You can send it to your friends, whatever. Um, sending Bible notes to your friends, that would be funny. Um, so that's there as well on the Bible app. If you don't know how to check that out, go to the info desk at the end. But um, who enjoyed last week when we talked about... Pharisees, about the religious spirit. Um, today we're looking at the liberal spirit. So just as a little bit of a background, this little series is called Let's Talk About Sex. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk. I don't know why that is in my brain somewhere. It's not S-E-X, by the way. Sorry to disappoint you. It's S-E-C-T-S, a sect. And a sect is like a splinter or a group that has broken off from the original. And in Jesus' time, there were many sects. There were four main ones that, that broke off from, from the Jewish tradition of worshipping Yahweh in the Old Testament. Uh, and the four ones were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. The Pharisees were very religious. It was like the religious spirit. The Sadducees, we're going to be talking about it today, um, very much the liberal spirit, the Zealots, they were the, the Machiavellian spirit. Wow, that's a big word. The political spirit. They were aggressive. And the Essenes, they were like the super spiritual spirits. They were waiting around for the Lord to return, and they were pretty crazy. So I'm going to be talking about them uh, maybe next week or the week after. But like spirits don't die. 
and they get cast into the abyss, hopefully, but the, the same ones that were trying to get believers in Jesus off course um, and waylaid and trapped and offended and disillusioned and compromised 2,000 years ago are exactly the same spiritual forces that are alive today in 2023, and they're doing the same thing. Maybe the packaging is a little bit different, but they're getting Christians to get off course, whether it's over-spiritual or very religious or very liberal or very fanatical. And so we have got to be on our guard. The Bible says, do not be unaware of the devil's schemes. So we've got to pay attention. We've got to remind ourselves about this. This is why, especially in this day and age, like I'm 49 years old now, and it just seems to be that the... Does someone say, wow? Like, do I look younger than 49? Or Thank you. Like I went to the, spoke at the youth ministry a couple of weeks ago, and someone said, you're just not supposed to be here, Simon. You're too old for this. So, where, where was I? I can't even remember. Oh, the day in which we live, and it's just getting crazier and crazier. And I do think this is a message series that's very, very relevant. So um, if you didn't listen to last week's, please go online and please look at the video. I've got a link in the Bible notes because I'm getting a lot more savvy with that. Um, so you can watch that. Um, on YouTube, and uh, also, if like I was thinking, like doing this over the four weeks is, I'm probably going to be offending everyone. Like, there's probably something that you could get um, tempted to be upset with me about. Please don't get upset with me. Please take that to the Lord. Um, if if you were triggered or something sets you off, please think, why am I feeling this way? Why is is that upsetting me? And just take that to the Lord, and hopefully ask the Lord into your life to do some surgery in your heart. Okay, so are we ready? Sadducees, and in a word, liberal. And what do we know about the Sadducees? Just a few things before I look at the characteristics. The Sadducees were a socio-religious sect. So they, they were known, they're not just a religious sect. The Pharisees were known as a religious sect, but the Sadducees were known as a socio-religious sect. Socio first, they merged social issues of their day. They mixed that. Um, and the issues, and their culture with religion. We've got to remember that for next time, uh, for later on. The Sadducees were the most co- commonly the educated, socially popular, the wealthy, wealthy, the creatives. They were very much into Greek arts and culture. So if we sort of compare to them to, to main sort of stream people today, uh, they would be the creatives. They would be the ones that are the social influencers. They would be the ones that have got all these popular TikTok and whatever channels they have on the interwebs and podcasts and all that. They were very um, socially popular. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they were sort of normally middle of the road, ordinary people. Um, the Pharisees and Sadducees both hated each other, but they came together and they were united. They united together because they hated Jesus more, which shows you that their spirits or the, the demonic things that are behind the scenes, they are on the same camp. Uh, and as Jesus said uh, back um, last week when we were talking about the Pharisees who were so steeped in religion and legalism, he called them workers of lawlessness, which is the exact opposite of what they were trying to, trying to be. So it's the same thing to Jesus and like I said last week, um, when we're journeying with Jesus and our passion to, to avoid legalism, we've got to be so careful that we don't go the other way so extreme that we fall into the ditch of lawlessness. And in our passion to avoid lawlessness or license or sinful living or mixture or compromise, we don't end up falling in the ditch of legalism um, and religion. So that's a bit of background. Characteristics 
of the Sadduceical heart. Uh, the, the Sadducees, what were the characteristics of them? What defined them as a group of people back in Jesus' day? And what defines people that still carry the Sadduceical heart? It's a cool word. Um, in modern day, number one. And this is going to get exciting, guys. I've, um, I'm really looking forward to this. Number one. A Sadducee does not believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. A Sadducee does not believe that all Scripture is God-breathed. So the Sadducees in Jesus' day, they believed that only the first five books of the Old Testament were the true Old Testament. It's called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That is what they believed is canon, and they threw away the rest of the Old Testament because they didn't like what it said, they avoided what it said, or they removed it completely. But it goes further than that. And I'll talk about this a little bit later on. But Sadducees, they did not believe in the afterlife. They did not believe in heaven or hell. They did not believe in angels or demons. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. But it's one of those things. Take angels, for example. Angels are right through uh, the first five books of the Bible. So even though they said that, well, we we believe that this is the word of God, there were still big parts of their Bible that they disagreed with and they just didn't like. So they removed those parts as well. Now, we may not do that literally, but perhaps we do it in our hearts. We just completely avoid the parts of the Bible that we don't like or we disagree with. Thomas Jefferson, he was a U.S. president way back in the day. He did this literally. He literally got a Bible and he cut out the parts of the Bible he did not like. He loved the parts about Jesus, but even the parts about Jesus, some things he disagreed with. So he didn't believe in miracles. So he cut out all the miracles um, of the life of Jesus. And he compiled his own Bible, which would have been incredibly small. Would have been like a pamphlet. And he called it the life of and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. He did that literally. We may not do it literally, but we definitely sometimes do it spiritually. And there is a growing movement. It's called progressive Christianity, and I'll describe that in a little bit. But one of the big things, and they love calling themselves this, they call themselves red-letter Christians, which are Christians that they believe the Old Testament's just full of fairy tales, and there's so much error in the Bible, so they just dis- disagree with that. They remove that from their thinking and their faith, but they love Jesus because Jesus is cute and cuddly, and he loves everyone, um, and they call themselves red-letter Christians because they say they only believe and they only value the red parts of the Bible, and if you've got a flash Bible, those are the parts of the, the Bible that Jesus spoke, and they call themselves red-letter Christians. But I want to challenge them on that. Um, Because Jesus said some pretty heavy-duty things. For example, Mark 10, verses 6 to 9. And some people ask Jesus about divorce, and he gives them um, some teaching on that. He says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. God made them male and female. They didn't make themselves either or. God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. Let's just have a little bit of a uh, look at this. First of all, Jesus quotes Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24, therefore validating that Genesis is not a fairy tale, it's not an allegory, it actually happened, it's historically accurate. Also, what is Jesus teaching here? That humans are male 
and they're female. They are biologically different. In other words, they display sexual differences. They leave each other's family and they become their own family unit and they become one flesh and their union is permanent. He didn't directly address it, but there Jesus is directing homosexuality homosexuality indirectly and also transgenderism indirectly. And I'll tell you what, a lot of red-letter Christians would be super upset with Jesus right now. They'd probably be tempted to get out some scissors and make their own Thomas Jefferson Bible. So Jesus said some straight-up things. So we have got to be so careful that we don't remove from our belief things in the Bible that we find hard to agree with or we don't believe or we avoid. If we do so, we place ourselves in the same category of people that Jesus called broods of vipers. Boom. Truth bomb. (laughs) Number two, a Sadducee is a syncretist. Jewish virtual library, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a Christian, but it's a huge um, conglomeration of a whole lot of um, free uh, teaching stuff you can look at with, with Judaism and, and, and Israel. This was a, a part of that when I was researching this I wanted to bring out. The Sadducees wanted to maintain the priestly system, but they were also liberal in their willingness to incorporate Hellenism into their life. So Hellenism is Greek culture, philosophy, and religion. So the Sadducees, they synchronized, that's where we get this word syncretism, they synchronized or melded or mixed or joined their faith with the popular worldview of the day. They loved the religious side of Judaism and the parts that they liked, but they also thought that they had an illumination or a revelation that there was a higher way to serve God or a better way to serve God or a more enlightened way to serve God, and that's taking the good parts of their religion, traditional religion that they liked, and merge it or mix it or synchronize it with the modern culture of the day, which was Greek culture, and that was incredibly immoral. The Sadducees synchronized or melded their faith with the popular worldview of the day. Modern day Sadducees, they think they've had a revelation or illumination. Then traditional Christianity, they mix parts of Christian doctrine they like with current culture and the current worldview. There's a name for this and it's called progressive Christianity. How people believe that Christianity, um, from what we've learned as traditional Christianity, it needs to evolve and it needs to change because culture changes. And therefore, what we believed a thousand years ago needs to change to be relevant to the culture today. A thousand years later, it's called syncretism. And so what does the Bible teach about this merging of our faith with the values of the day? It's not talking about being relevant. You can be really relevant to the culture of the day, and Jesus calls us to be relevant, but we all know that Jesus was sinless, and he was the most relevant person out there. He could have a conversation with the tax collectors and with the prostitutes, as well as the the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was so relevant. He never once compromised his values. So what does the Bible talk about this mixing of, like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I, I, I believe in this worldview right now because it's popular. James 4, verse 4, and I'm reading from the Passion Translation. I haven't done this for a while, just so all the religious spirits will run away right now. You have become spiritual adulterers who are having an affair, an unholy relationship with the world. Don't you know that flirting with the world's values places you at odds with God? 
or makes you an enemy of the God. We've got this world system against us. We've got demons against us. We've got the devil against us. I don't want to have God against me also. Flirting with the world's values places you at odds with God. Whoever chooses to be the world's friend, it's talking about this world's value system, this world's worldview, makes himself God's enemy. Sadducee does not believe that all scripture is God-breathed. A Sadducee is a syncretist. I want to say something, and it might surprise some of us, but I'm just going to throw it out there. Christianity will always be counterculture. It will always be counterculture. Why? Because culture is just a combination and a promotion of what is the most popular of that part of culture. And the unredeemed heart of man is fundamentally opposed to God. It says in Romans 8, 7 that a mind governed by the flesh is hostile towards God. And we live in this fallen world with a lot of people that are far away from God right now. So it's obvious that most of the culture that we live in is going to be counterculture to what we believe. And I've got a bit of a, an analogy. Heard it years ago in a different context, but I think it's so relevant for today. I talked to a couple of years ago, a series about navigating the gray, how there's like, there's so much gray in our world. And when we, you know, the Bible doesn't say specifically whether something's right or wrong in many cases. So we've just got to um, follow the Holy Spirit's leading and navigate the gray. And I think most of my life, there's been the black and then there's been the white, but then there's been this massive chasm in the middle called the gray. And what I actually am really believing is happening in this day and age is that gray part in the middle, it's getting smaller and smaller to the point where whether we want to or not, we have got to stand up and we've got to decide which side we are on. We have, it's like, it's getting harder and harder to to be in the middle and not have an opinion and just to play it safe. And I think that's actually a good thing. If you look through church history, it's when the church has been most persecuted that the church has been the strongest. Why? Because we've just got to make a choice. Do I actually believe in this stuff or not? Do I want to stand on the rock of Jesus Christ or not? So, yeah, we're living in a topsy-turvy world. I actually think that perhaps is a very good thing for us because it actually shows us whether we truly believe in what we've been professing our whole lives. There's a, actually, no, I'll share this quote. No, I won't. I'll say point three. I'm getting ahead of myself. Number three. A Sadducee emphasizes tolerance over repentance. A Sadducee emphasizes tolerance over repentance. The Sadducees never preached or demonstrated repentance. It really wasn't their thing because there was no rewards or there was no judgment after you die, so there was no real incentive to live right before God. So repentance wasn't even really in their vocabulary, so much so that then they, when they went to check out John the Baptist, John the Baptist rebuked them and said, what are you doing here? You actually, this is Simon's paraphrase, you don't believe in the afterlife, like no one's telling you to flee from the wrath to come. And then he said, live a life in keeping with repentance. It wasn't even part of their belief. Instead, they love to accept people. They love to tolerate. They love to love everyone. They never sort of talked or challenged about what was right or wrong. Here's a quote out of an excerpt out of stuff I've been researching about this in the last few weeks. Modern day Sadducees 
are the theological liberals who reject the portions of God's word that conflict with popular moral and social beliefs. These people use only a small selection of Bible verses when expressing their religious views and faith. They preach love but exclude repentance, God's holiness, and the final judgment. Their concept of love is not only acceptance of sinful people, but affirming their behavior as well. But we've got to love all people, but there is a point in time where we realize that, that there is a thing called sin. And before we point the finger at other people's lives, we've got to demonstrate what repentance looks like in our lives. So there's a whole nother, like the whole tolerance and acceptance thing, it's a whole nother sermon for a whole nother time. But we are living in a time where if we don't accept a person's behavior, like we can love people and we can, we can accept them as a person, but if we don't accept them or encourage their behavior that we know is contrary to the word of God, we will be canceled or, or we will be hated. Um, I want to talk about wokeness because that's a word that's sort of getting more popular. Like I know I've used it in a few sermons. It's like that person's woke and, uh, and it's like people are saying, well, what on earth is this word called woke? It's like, I'm awake. It's like, what's this? Whoa. And like, we're using it now, but actually I think most of us still like, okay, Simon, can you explain what woke is like? Well, I don't know. It sort of means this. Like we sort of know, but we don't know. So I want to talk about what wokeness is because we think it's been just invented in the last few years, but the Sadducees, like they were the OG woke people. Like they invented it 2000 years ago. They just didn't have a word for it. Uh, But we made up the word a couple of thousand years later. So wokeness, here is a, a definition And this is what woke people believe, that rectifying social and racial issues and prejudices is your highest priority. I'll say that again. Rectifying social and racial issues and prejudices is your highest priority. So as Christians, we know that we have to be involved in social issues. And like we honestly and obviously know that racism is evil. So we've got to sort of stand up and speak up against that. But I just have to say that rectifying social and racial issues and prejudices is not our highest priority. Glorifying God is our highest priority. The the Westminster Catechism says man's chief end is to glorify God. That's why we are here to worship him, to surrender to him. So all other social causes must be eclipsed by a relationship with Jesus. Everything else in life, all the the causes that we are passionate about, and they may be very passionate and righteous and worthy causes, they must be eclipsed by our relationship with Jesus. And unfortunately, what happens is so many people call themselves Christians, but you would never, ever know that they are a Christian, but you definitely know the causes they are standing up for as far as social issues. They are very loud at proclaiming and damning certain things, but you'd never know that In their life, their relationship with Jesus is the highest thing. So these things have to be in order. But it actually goes a little bit further than that because there is a real aggressive, demonic thing that's infiltrated this whole whole woke social justice thing. And here's another quote. I actually think this is a better definition of what being woke is. Being woke is an authoritarian worldview that seeks to deconstruct the foundations of our Christian faith by overwhelming, overpowering, and overthrowing those who do not adhere to its ideology. Which means it's like, yeah, I sort of agree with you, but I I don't agree with you. Then they hate us. They cancel us. And because we're proclaiming 
a life change of surrender. It's like we're no longer following our own will and passions. We're following a higher purpose. Jesus, it's all about surrender and, and humility. They don't like that because it's all about changing with violence and aggression. And I've been thinking a lot about this lately. Like social issues, like I said, they are worthy causes, but they have to, have to be underpinned. The foundation must be the gospel, else it simply does not work. It just, just becomes filthy, righteous deeds. And it's the same as the, the Declaration of Independence in, in America. That was written by, by God-fearing, Christ-loving men of God. Uh, it was a righteous document back a few hundred years ago, and it absolutely worked. Why? Because the foundation was the gospel. You take away that foundation, and the whole thing turns to custard, and it becomes a complete mess because no one has that foundation of Jesus anymore. And we're seeing that actually playing out as we speak over in America. It's like the blind leading the blind. So before I finish up this whole little talk about being woke, we must be so careful that when we talk about justice, we mean God's justice and not social justice. Different thing. We must be so careful that when we talk about love, we mean God's love, which Jesus demonstrated by dying so that no man may perish, and not the world's love, which is embracing of sin. We must be so careful that when we talk about reconciliation, we mean acknowledging the wrongs of the past, forgiving each other and moving on, not reconciling or mixing, which is what the word means, traditional Christianity with progressive Christian heresy. Number one. The Sadducee does not believe that all scripture is God breathed. Number two, a Sadducee is a syncretist. Number three, a Sadducee emphasizes tolerance over repentance. Number four, a Sadducee focuses on the temporal, not the eternal. The Sadducee rejected entirely the belief in the supernatural, the afterlife, heaven and hell, angels and demons. So they just they completely avoided that. They say, okay, it's, all there is is now. There is no afterlife. There is no judgment. There's no resurrection of the dead. There's no heaven or hell. There's no, there's no rewards in heaven. There's no judgment day for, for judging our deeds here on earth. All there is is the temporal. All there is is this life. All there is is the here and the now. So if you place very little emphasis on eternity, you will put all the emphasis on the temporal, the here and the now. When you take away the reality of eternity, heaven, hell, eternal judgment, etc., rewards in heaven, rewards in heaven are actually a big New Testament theme, by the way. When you take all that away, then the tangible, the finite, the material becomes of utmost importance. So when we're no longer thinking of eternity, this is what we start to think. I need to make the world a better place now. I need to be a better person. I need to, to, to do good deeds I need to promote good deeds, not the good news. If, if this is all I have, if this planet is, is all there's going to be, then I, I can't really, I don't need to think about eternity because that's not real. All I've got to do now is to spend all of my time thinking about how to make this planet a better place. All I do, we need to get along now. We need to save this planet. We need to focus on good works. And you can, you can quote the following, I'm really proud of it. Our voice for social justice, conservation, environmentalism, and sustainability must not be louder than our voice for Jesus in the gospel. 
Our voice for social justice, conservation, environmentalism, and sustainability must not be louder than our voice for Jesus and the gospel. What is more important, saving the planet or saving souls? Like, what's more important? Honestly, saving a whale or saving souls? Like, whales aren't going to live forever. Hopefully, there are going to be whales in heaven, but I'm not sure. If, hopefully, they'll be recreated or something. Whales don't have souls. Humans have souls. The human soul is eternal. We are going to be living forever. The, the decider is where we're going to be spending eternity. Like, the soul is worth more than the whole world because this world is temporal. Well, I don't believe I ever said that. Like, all, the, all the Greenpeace whale lovers, it's like, ooh, Simon, take that out of context and put it on YouTube. I'll probably get about a million hits. <laughs> you guys get my point, though? We are so caught up in saving us. And obviously, we've got to be good stewards because the Bible teaches. And like, I want to have a beautiful world and leave a beautiful world for my grandchildren and my grandchildren's grandchildren. Like, we've got to be good stewards. But it's all going to go one day. It's all going to be burned up one day. And I've even got a chapter and verse for you about that. 2 Peter 3 verse 9 to 15. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promises, some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live. See, it's talking about what we do now is going to affect eternity. Looking forward to the day of the Lord and hurrying it along. How do we hurry along the end of the world, the returning of the Lord? Shall we just trash this place so that Jesus has to come back quicker? No. <laughs> it's a joke. Um, <laughs> We've got to judge Scripture with Scripture. We know in Matthew 24, it says that the gospel of this kingdom will be preached in all nations, to all people groups, and then the end will come. How do we hasten the return of Jesus? Let's go out there and tell this world about Jesus. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames, but we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. He has promised a world filled with God's righteousness. There's going to be a new earth. And so, dear friends, while you're waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. Yes, let's get passionate about environmentalism and stuff, but that should, like, compared to our passion for Jesus... That should be like a million, we should be a million times more excited about Jesus and the gospel. The Sadducee does not believe that all scripture is God breathed. The Sadducee is a syncretist. There's a lot of mixture and compromise. Number three, a Sadducee emphasizes tolerance over repentance. Number four, a Sadducee focuses on the temporal, not the eternal. And number five, a Sadducee has a form of godliness but denies its power. If I could have the band up, it would be awesome, thanks. The Sadducee has a form of godliness, but denies its power. The Sadducees, they love the, the temple. They love the ceremony. They love the liturgies. They, they love the, 
all of that stuff. They, they sort of loved getting involved and having that sort of place where they could gather and they could be religious. They loved that, but there was no heart change. They, they sort of loved the, well, I'm not going to call pomp of it, but the, the, the ceremony and like the, the, the spectacle, they loved all of that side of religion, but it never, ever affected their heart. They never, ever really understood or experienced the power of God. And there are many, many Christians like this today. They, they sort of love a form of godliness where it's like, yeah, I love to go to the, the, the traditional church where I know what's going to happen and we sing hymns about God, but we're never challenged to change our lives. We're never challenged to repent. It's, but I just love this. I love the ceremony. It sort of makes me feel good to be religious about that. But then you get them into a place where the power of God is and that they are challenged to actually readjust their lives and they just run a million miles. I just, I couldn't, there, there wouldn't be anything worse than a, in a religion without the power of God. And we, we were just at um, the, the New Life Conference during this week, and we missed out on the whole first day because we, we went into, from Auckland, we flew into Wellington, and we got turned back twice. We flew back to Auckland, so we had to spend the night in Auckland. Things happened. Um, we got a free hotel and free food, so I was pretty happy. Missed out on the first, conf- first night, though. But in the second one, the, the, the first worship time, you know, I shared last week about inviting God into those, those difficult times in our lives. I was saying, God, please, I, why am I struggling in this area? Why, why? and honestly, like, I'm, I'm not going to really share much of it because I won't be able to do that without, without crying and becoming emotional. But in a split second, God, and I don't really have visions a lot, but it was pretty close to a vision. It was incredibly powerful and supernatural. God took me back to some times in my life when I was 11 years old and, and just showed me some stuff that he was with me and then he brought me to now. And it's like, well, this is why you are so lonely and, 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 and all the words spoken over, that's why you sort of fall into this area of, of insecurity um, and, and the lack of all this. Was, I'm making a bad job of trying to say what happened, but it was so powerful. And so I said, God, please do that work in my life now. And in a split second, I felt something completely leave my life. It's the power of God and opening ourselves up to the power of God. And that's a scary thing because sometimes he shows us things in our lives that aren't very pretty. And we really don't have control over what he's going to ask us to do. But he who the Son sets free is free indeed. We've got to let him into our lives. It's the power of God. There wouldn't be anything worse than a form of religion but denying the power of God. But so many of us do. We enjoy church. We enjoy the worship. We enjoy being encouraged. But do we really open up our lives? And do we allow the power of God into our lives? Or we do we deny the gospel's power? 2 Timothy 3, 1-7. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty of Condensed verses 2 and 4. For people will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. There's a whole lot of other things there. Verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women. I'm sure there are weak men as well. Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. See, Living a religious life is not going to deal with the sin in our lives. It will just drive that sin underground. The law can never wash away sin. It's only the blood of Jesus that will wash away sin. So people sort of think religion's going to do it for them, and then they realize it won't, and they're burdened down with all of these things, and then they think, okay, religion's not doing it. Then I'm going to get into lawlessness. I'm just going to, there's going to be no holds barred to what I do in my life. 
and they realize they're still not going to be free, they're still going to be in bondage. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. I listen to podcasts, not often, but sometimes. I listen to sort of one this week all about like a person was saying, well, you know, we don't need to find truth. And like it's sort of unfindable. And, and I'm, this is what the guy was saying, or the girl. I'm just like enjoying just like not knowing anymore and just throwing off all the burdens. And like I want to throw my phone at something. Uh, but then after that, because that's not a godly response, I just felt so sad um, and heartbroken because I know something. We can know the truth. And the truth will set us free. We can know the truth. This whole world is looking for the truth, whether they believe it or understand it or not. And the only thing that will bring true freedom and true fulfillment to us is Jesus. We can know the truth. His name is Jesus. And He will set us free if we open up our lives to Him. Sadducee is a form of godliness, but denies its power. But Romans 1, 16 says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We're going to have communion soon as a, as a response time. And... Uh, we've got plastic little bottles and sort of like I love the big chunks of bread and the big cups but because we're in a you know there's a lot of us and we've got restraints of time so before this just to give you a little bit of a primer as how to do it you take the, the first part off and there's a cracker there and then the, the next part and then there's the grape juice and I'm really sorry it's plastic like all the plastic waste we just we just fasten hastening the return of Jesus by wrecking this world with plastic just kidding Again, like I said in the deconstruction series, what does it really mean to be a Christian, a Christ follower? Believe in Jesus, who He is and what He did. Turn to Jesus, present yourself to Him, surrender and repent. Trust in Jesus and His words, however difficult and troubling they are, and follow Jesus. Really say, not my will, but yours be done. That that word, like, we can do repentance and it can just be, uh, sorry, communion. It can just be something that we do. Or we can do communion as a response to, to our hearts, surrendering to God, and it can change our lives. Remember as a kid, and like I had a brother who's a little bit older than me. I have a brother. And like we would fight like brothers do. And then like mum would come along and, and try and bring reconciliation to us. And Simon, like apologize to your brother. It's like in my heart, I just want to punch him in the mouth. But it's like, okay, sorry. So I'm doing what is expected of me, but my heart's far away. Like the last thing I want to do is apologize, but I do it because it's like, it's what you're supposed to. Like responding to God and, and, and like we're doing communion this morning. We can just do it because we're told to do it. And it's, but it will be so powerful if our heart agrees with why we're doing it. Why do we have communion? Jesus with his best friends, before he went to the cross, he took some, some juice. He said, this represents my blood that washes away your sin. Nothing else in this whole world can wash away sin. Not behavior modification, not the greatest spiritual enlightenment and help books. There's nothing except the blood of Jesus. Washes away sin. 
we all sin. Sin separates us from God. We're not going to be able to go to heaven if we die and we've still got sin in our lives, but the blood of Jesus washes away all sins. That's why we have communion. It reminds us of that and, and the, the bread that Jesus broke. It says, this is my body broken. You know, the cross was such a violent thing. And Jesus did it because there had to be a price for sin. And he took all of the sin of the world upon himself. And so with communion, it is such a, a holy time and an incredible time and a time of celebration, which we look back and we remember and we celebrate and we apply it to our lives. But there's also a very serious part of communion where we understand the price of what Jesus did. And we perhaps understand that we're off course or we're not quite in the place that we want to. And it's a time where we come to Jesus in humility and, and repentance. And before we take communion, we say, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I want to make a fresh start. I want to make you the king and the Lord and the boss, the center of my life. I've gone off course. God, I'm not doing a whole lot of things. I'm thinking a whole lot of wrong things, but I want to come back. I want to follow you. I want to make you the Lord of my life. So it's a very holy thing. It's a very powerful thing. Miracles happen when people take communion all the time. So if you have sickness in your body, believe that as you're thinking about the blood of Jesus, that washes away all sin. If you're thinking about how Jesus' body was broken so your body could be healed, like there is faith in that. Um, and people can have an incredible miracle in their lives as we take communion. Let's up, be upstanding, please. A couple of things in response. You know how before I was talking about a brood of vipers? Can I go on for a couple more minutes? Is that okay? And... And it was John the Baptist, I think, but also Jesus that called both Pharisees and the Sadducees a brood of vipers. And I was thinking, why did he just call themselves snakes? Well, what's, what's important about vipers? There's a couple of really interesting characteristics about vipers. First of all, they can swivel and rotate their fangs um, independently of each other. Isn't that cool? Um, but they can do that so they can hold on to prey really well. They are very good at biting and they are very good at getting like that. They're very good at giving a bite and injecting venom into their prey. And like other forms of, of snakes, um, their, their venom affects their, um, their flesh, but viper venom affects the blood. Um, they don't wrap themselves around their prey like boa constrictors and stuff do. They just bite, and then they leave it, and then they just go away, slither away, and they watch as the venom takes effect. Like They know that they've made this bite, and they just watch, and the, the venom overtakes the person's um, defenses and immune system, and the person dies, or the, per uh, the prey dies, and then the viper just comes along and starts eating it. That's exactly what the spiritual forces that are our enemies do, especially in this area of being a Sadducee, especially in this area of compromise and mixture. Just one little bite goes into our system, whether it's um, offense or, or you know, we, we start to explain away why we are sinning or disillusionment or you know, dislike of how church happens. It's just a little bite and that just works in our system. It's a cool thing that the blood of Jesus washes away all sin. That can cleanse us whiter than snow. One more thing, Matthew 16, 8 says, and Jesus said, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Why is this so dangerous? Because a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Just a couple of people in a church can work through a whole church and bring bondage in religion and also bring bondage in legalism and license and liberalism. So, Lord, as we finish up this little section of the series, I want to thank you for your blood that is so powerful that washes away the devil's venom from our lives. 
And Lord, as we take communion as a holy moment, as a response to you, Lord, we're doing this with all of our hearts and we're so serious about this, Lord, that we'll get our lives back on track, that we'll be right in the center of your will for our lives, God, that we won't be falling into ditches left or right. We'll be pleasing you with our lives, God. I pray if if any one of us has been bitten by by wrong thinking or lies or septic or toxic thoughts or behavior, as we take communion, I pray there'll be an incredible cleansing that comes into our bodies. And as renewed church, God, because every church has pockets, Lord, I pray that the spirit of religion will go from this place and the spirit of liberalism will go from this place and we will live free, full of joy and hope and strength. In the name of Jesus, Lord, as we eat and drink together, I pray that there will be miracles happen, people returning to you. If you've never given your life to Jesus, give your life to Jesus now and then have communion. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're just going to sing the song and at any time you can you can have communion. If you want to come forward and kneel, please do so. If you want to stand at the back, if you want, want to do something like that, um, because now is a holy moment. If the Holy Spirit's asking you to do that in response, like please do that and please obey the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much, guys. Let's sing a song. Let's have communion together. Thanks so much for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. To contact us or to find out what's happening at our church, please check out our website, renewchurch.nz.